Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 255. Well, that was unexpected. Recorded October 9th, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. Doesn't happen anywhere else, right here. If you hear anybody else ranting, they're just not doing it right. Um, I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, I want to say it, as always, are your two co-hosts, uh, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Master of the Coin, Wakeham. Hey, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome, faithful element opiates. World domination is surely right around the corner. And it better happen with cryptocurrency. Hello, everybody. <laughs> So there's been some interesting news articles about uh, Bitcoin lately. Uh, one one, uh, one um, uh, headline that got my attention, you know, it was a it was a clickbait headline, but I haven't actually read the article. Uh, was entitled "What if one Bitcoin is not like another?" And uh, I don't even know what that means, but it makes me want to go read the article. I'll probably go back later and read that because um, it does sound maybe there's some problems with the with the 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 chain. I don't know. Let's let's we'll find out. Stay tuned to this batch dun, dun, dun. so uh for the none of you who are watching live i want to apologize for being late and that's why there are none of you watching live because i was late sorry about that um i have had one of those days first off um my mama came to visit and you know when mama comes into town everything changes anyway you know that's just the way it goes um we had my eight-year-old's birthday party uh, her birthday was last week, but her party was this week, um, and we went mini-golfing. Uh, but before that, like, let's see, the party was on Saturday. On Thursday, she was uh, out front of the house riding her bicycle like little girls do, and we're not entirely sure what happened, but at the, something precipitated the old flip over the handlebars and land on your face. Um And so she has a huge road rash all the way down one side of her face, lip so swollen uh she looked like leon spinks or something it was just it was absolutely hideous and her major concern was not uh all this hurts but i'm gonna be ugly for my party pictures um so <laughs> that's when you know you're raising girls um, <laughs> that, she's uh, gonna be okay though right she's she's gonna be fine doesn't look like i mean there may be some minor scarring but hey that's that's how you know you you had a childhood right she'll be able to point to this little spot right here and say see that I was doing something awesome, and that happened. I was rescuing a baby from a burning building. It, it doesn't have to be a true story. You just have to have a story. The older <laughs> she gets, the better she was. <laughs> That's right. Um, but anyway, we had our party yesterday, so Grandma came in uh, because we were having the birthday party, and also uh, two um, uh, exciting spiritual events happened in my family's life. Uh, my my young, same youngest daughter was baptized today. Um, which is, uh, you know, a, a big, a big thing, uh, in my family anyway. And one of my best friends was, uh, or, ordained as a deacon tonight. Um, and we expected that service to go long, um, and yet it went even longer. So because of the party events and, and my mom being and all those things, I didn't spend any time at home today doing show prep. And because of the deacon ordination service going late, I was home uh, a, a good hour later than I intended to be. So I ran in here, sat down and said, all right, guys, let's do a show. So if we're not up to the uh, journalistic excellence you expect, I take full blame for it. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to your first ever <laughs> listening. <laughs> it's a low bar. <laughs> um, so that was my uh, uh, little ad adventure 
this week, Seth? Anything interesting happen in your life? Um, I went a little Fitbit crazy this week. Um, you know, I got my Fitbit a few weeks ago, and I am actually I'm loving it because I'm a very competitive person, and so you know you can do these little challenges in Fitbit, and so I've been doing the the work week challenge with friends of mine and. Okay, I'm I'm older and much fatter and much more out of shape than them. So if we were like going to line up and race, I would lose every one. But you know, you kind of it's like how many steps can you get during the course of a week? And you go at your own pace and just post whenever. And it's the week. So I was like, cool, I'm I'm doing good. And then Friday, I I still don't know what possessed me, but I was like, I want to see if I can do forty thousand steps today, which is just over nineteen and a half miles. And uh, it took me over ten hours of walking. But I did it, and I, I, I actually got a, I chafed uh, my arms, and so I did not know you could do that. And like, if somebody put a gun to my head and said you need to make it to twenty miles, I would have said you're going to have to shoot me because I really can't. <laughs> um, and then the next day, that was Friday, so Saturday, I woke up at like three uh, thirty in the afternoon. <laughs> and I had like a total of four hundred steps for the whole day. So it averages so, out. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it was cool because I don't know that I've ever walked just under 20 miles in one day in my life. Even back in my youth when I was less stationary than I am now. So, I can tell you a guaranteed way to win all of those competitions. It's really simple. You go to your local Home Depot store, you hand them your Fitbit and you have them put it on the paint shaker. Um <laughs> And then you come back uh, half an hour later, and uh, you have crushed it. I'm not or, saying I would do that. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, it is a thing. Or if you have the band, you can put it around the, um, you know, your tire rim and drive somewhere. Well, there's that. Or just <laughs> tie it on the dog's collar and throw a ball a few times, you know. Right. There's lots of options. Well, congratulations no. on you. Honestly, that's 40,000 steps in a day. Um, that is something like eight times what the average person does. Um that, that's pretty impressive. I think my biggest day, it was when I was moving. Um, and I think I got 26,000. Uh, and that, that was, uh, you know, not just steps, but lifting and twisting and right. thing. And so I, I, at the end of that day, I was just done. I, I had nothing left. So I, I could imagine the difficulty of 40,000 steps for a guy who is not super active. I mean, if you're a marathon runner, that's nothing, but you're not. And so good on you. Yeah, I was, uh, I, you know, last week I did 35,000 one day and I was like, I want to do 40. And now I can tell you that I don't think I'll be trying for 45 this side of 300. <laughs> so uh, it'll be a while before I attempt that one. Well, my company uh, had a, a picnic uh, for the IT staff this week. It was just a, you know, we'd met some milestones. And so Friday afternoon, we knocked off at noon, went to a local park. There was some barbecue and uh, it was a bunch of old guys playing softball. I have never seen so many outfielders they were like 19 outfielders um <laughs> but when when your average age is like 42 um you kind of need that many outfielders because really nobody's going to run that far um, right but uh one of my co-workers uh who is a runner um both distance and speed uh said they never have any of my events at these things right there's there's baseball and there's there's tennis and but they never have anything that i could do and somebody said yeah because you're the thing you do is punishment for everybody else you show up late right. to practice, you run some wind sprints. You know, you, you sass the cow, uh, coach, you run 40 laps. That's what she does for fun. So your fun is punishment. Yep. <laughs> All right, Miles, what happened to you this week that uh, our audience might find interesting? Or not. Uh, 
I don't know if they'll find it interesting because I just had a pretty boring mundane regular week. But I did, I did. Ha- and, you know, it's funny we were talking last week about um, repair shops, and it just so happened on Monday this week, my wife comes in to see me and she says something's really going crazy with my car, and I'm like, "What do you mean?" Well, I can't turn it off. I'm like what? You can't turn it off. You can turn it on, but you can't turn it off. Apparently. She drives it into the, uh, you know, it, to stationary position, presses the button to turn the engine off. The engine turns off, but all the dash lights and the, you know, the AV system and the car and everything stay on. They won't turn off. She has to turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off like five times before it eventually decides it's going to turn off. So I thought, oh, well, I guess the, the natural thing to do is to take it to the, you know, dealer, right? The dealership and get them to look at it. So I did that. And uh, I get a phone call back, you know, next day. Well, we can't, we can't repeat the problem. It's working fine for us. I'm like, come on, of course you can repeat the problem. But no, they couldn't. Well, you better come pick it up. And by the way, it'll be $280. Like, what? <laughs> Diagnostic cannot, fee. Yeah. Uh, really? And uh, so what exactly did I just pay my money? Anyway, I, I was fuming. I couldn't believe that I had to pay $280 for them to not find the problem. So anyway, um, long story short, I decided that every other thing that I needed to get repaired in the house was going to get done by actual competent technicians. And so having lost that battle with the car, I ended up fixing my daughter's iPhone at a, you know, aftermarket little repair shop who managed to fix every single problem that was on there that were all harbor related for like 50 bucks. So I thought that's a win. And then, um, the same thing with a laptop computer. I got all that sorted out for like $80 because the battery was dying on me and that was a win. So I, I looked at, you know, sort of the ledger and I said, on the one hand, we had a loss here on the car and on the other hand, we had some wins on the on the uh, phone and the computer. So I guess I came out zero. So that was my week. Boring, but, you know, <laughs> what do you do? The Friday before uh, Labor Day, my wife was in an accident and uh, – we got her van back Tuesday of this week. So over a month, they had the van to repair it. And we got it home, and we're, uh, we, we, the, the bulk of the damage was at the front of the vehicle. So that's what we inspected when she picked it up. She got it home and found that, and we're pretty sure this would have happened during towing and not during the accident, the rear driver's side quarter panel is uh got a big dent and a huge scratch in it and the taillight is cracked and there's water in it so it was sitting outside for a while after it cracked um and so we called the company and they were like no we didn't do that (laughs) so we had to go we had to go back and call the insurance agent again and fortunately they have have agreed to fix it but then the the same repair shop was like yeah bring it in uh it'll probably take us three to four weeks are you freaking kidding me um (laughs) And we only, our insurance plan only allows 30 days of rental car. And we've burned that up for this claim. This is the same claim. So we have to give them our car for another three to four weeks without a rental because they didn't fix it right the first time. And so I I feel your pain on repair shops not doing their thing, but still charging you for it. Well, I I put it down to the fact that they're employing entry-level apprentices in these jobs to do that sort of diagnostic work and if it's not sitting on the computer screen telling them exactly what to do like follow step one step two step three 
uh, the manufacturer says, you know, if you don't follow the script, they've not learnt the art of uh, problem solving or, you know, diagnosis. Um, I used to uh, have a friend of mine who's actually from the Caribbean, and he, uh, he, I watched him repair a car one day, and this guy is amazing. I mean, he'll get down under the car, he'll sort of scoot himself under the car, you'll, you'll hear him say, well, turn on the engine, so you turn it on, and he diagnoses the car with his ears. The guy can find any problem in any vehicle by sound, and that's a skill. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, he's like 50 years old, and th- I guess that's how he learned to do it in Jamaica or something. But Because they didn't have that? expensive diagnostic equipment. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want these skills, you know, retur- retained out there. This is, this is uh, wisdom that we should not lose. That's that's something I have decried many times. Is as we get more mechanized, um, you know, uh, we lose those skills. Mike Rowe, the the dirty jobs guy, uh, the way he puts it is that America has declared war on work. Uh, we we tell our our kids that jobs where people work are bad, and jobs where you wear a tie are good, um, and that everybody should be a doctor or a lawyer, and nobody should be a mechanic or or a janitor. And we as a society have declared war on work, and we're a generation away from not knowing how anything works. Yeah, a generation away from being a third world country. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're getting our butts handed to us by the third world countries. (laughs) Right. So just one quick thing. You you called your little section there, Miles, this week in frugality. I have unintentionally, but now I think I'm I'm actually going to go, I'm going to declare this as a stated goal. Um, my goal is to have the the least expensive, high most high quality man cave audiovisual system possible. Um, so I stumbled into and it stumbled into is not the right word. I I uh, I scatter gunned uh, and I've talked about it before. I, I routinely have two dozen bids on lowball bids on things on eBay, um, knowing you know something that retails for three fifty and you expect to get it used for one fifty. I'll put a forty dollar bid in there. I know I'm not going to get it, but someday somebody's not going to be paying attention, and I'm going to get it. Um, yeah, somebody goes to snipe, but then they're they were over their data limit from their carrier right. and wasn't going to pay the fee, and they lost it to you. And so that happens more often than not. And so I I currently have uh, in my uh, entertainment system now in the man cave a, um, uh, a not quite 780p, so it's an older model. It's a 1024 by 768, so it's slightly less than. 720p uh uh, 3500 lumens projector it's it's currently a seven foot image that i paid 54 dollars for after shipping um and you know it it's has uh like 3000 hours left on the bulb so uh, you know i'm gonna have to replace it in a year or so probably i can live with that um the screen i have i picked up uh, on again on eBay for thirty dollars. It's a hundred inch screen uh, pull down screen for thirty dollars, but it's going to be replaced as soon as I have some spare time with a dumpster dive screen that a friend of mine found. Uh, my office building was doing some um, re uh, remodeling, and they just ripped this thing out. Uh, even if the motor's burned out, you know I'm sure it's still the screen is good. I, I haven't been able ha- literally haven't had any time, but it's a it's a seven foot uh, or even eight foot. I'm not sure. It's a big screen. Uh, so once I get that mounted, that'll be zero dollars, or or maybe maybe it'll cost me ten or twenty to put parts in it. I don't know. Let's let's call it twenty five. 
So now I'm up to $75 with for the projector and the screen. I have a, a Roku 3 that I picked up for $30. Um, I have a TiVo Mini. Those things go used for uh, 99 to 149 all day long. I, I got this one for 40 um, Again, another low-ball bid thing. Um, and to just today, thank you, Craigslist, I picked up a 750-watt uh, uh, 5.1-channel surround sound system for... Care to take a guess, guys? Uh, $78.63. I was going to say like 50 bucks. 30. Whoa. 30. <laughs> and um, I, and the guy was like, yeah, I, I had it in my living room. We moved. I just don't want to set it back up. 30 bucks. Oh. Okay. And uh, I had to drive a little out of my way. I took my mom back to where she lives uh, and so I, I didn't even make a full trip. It was just a little out of my way. So let's call it $10 in gas. So 40 on that. So I have, you know, uh, a full on surround sound seven foot screen right now. And I've got 120 bucks into it. Uh, what maybe, maybe 160 in cables and adapters. Um, so that's sort of my goal right now is I want to see how cheap I can do this. So my next, what I'm looking for right now is I want a full 1080p projector. Um, so, but are I'm, you going to sell the screen that you have now since you've got the other one that works? Uh, as once, and, yeah, once I get everything working, yes, that's my plan. I'm going to sell that. And, uh, you know, I picked it up for 40. I can probably sell it for 60. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to start re- reducing some things uh, over time too. So that's sort of my, my goal and, and just to, to, to see how good I can make it for how little. So right now my plan, like my goal is to pick up a full 1080p 3000 lumens projector for 100 bucks or less. Now the odds of that are pretty slim, but you know, uh, it's it's just it's a matter of making enough bids. Eventually you hit one. And I'm a patient man. Well, you That's know, cool. I think it, you've got both sides of the equation too because I I don't know if it okay, everybody here and the audience may share something in common with this. Um over time when you're a geek, you tend to acquire a lot of electronic gadgets and tech and you know bits and pieces probably much more than we ever really need but we're all you know victims of seeing that flashy lights on something that we have to buy um my garage is full of it i mean absolutely full of it i've got a lot of collectibles out there but there's a lot of junk that are just you know old power supplies from computers dating back to 2001 that you know what about, you're never going to use it or a hard drive that's 80 gigabytes will be um I mean, stuff like that, right? So I thought if I'm going to have any ability to maintain any for- form of, of real estate in the in the garage, I'm going to have to start selling this stuff off. So back in, um, I guess, March, something like that, I started doing the eBay selling thing. And, uh, you know, I started to move out some stuff, which was great. I, I had a little bit of money coming in and I got a little bit of real estate back, you know, you know claiming some space. And then I started realizing, you know, if I could sell all the stuff that I've collected over the years and make that the budget to buy anything new that I wanted and not spend a dime outside of that budget, in effect, sort of recycle the money, recirculate the money through, right. I'd be doing the planet a favor because I wouldn't be filling some landfill with a whole bunch of, bunch of junk and I wouldn't have to pay anything to get the latest, you know, whatever. So I had my eyes set on a... A uh, new smartphone. I ended up wanting to get the HTC 10, and back in those days, that hadn't been released yet. I knew I was going to be up for like 750 bucks because I never buy phones on plans. I mean, that's just stupid. Um, you know, the, the 
junk fees they throw on top and everything. So uh, I knew I had this $750 phone I wanted to buy. So I made it a goal to go out there and find $750 worth of old tech I didn't need anymore and sell it wherever I could sell it. And I, I swear I got it in, uh, I think it was May, I bought that phone and it was the sweetest feeling to go into that store, slap down the cash for that phone and know that I didn't have to earn it. I just had to dust off all the rubbish in the garage and sell it on and bingo, new phone. Yeah. It's, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, and, and Seth is, has uh, espoused many times his love of the barter system, uh, and you can do that sort of stuff, too, with bartering. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I forgot, I just remembered that I forgot to mention, also down in the man cave is, is the, the the theater sister I mentioned, but I also have a, a full seven-foot dual recliner leather sofa that I paid $100 for, Craigslist, and a, a foosball table that I bought for 65 and then put another $30 worth of parts in um, to to rebuild it. And now it's it's as almost like new. It's got a few scratches and dings in it, but uh, those things go for 600 So, you know, my my whole man cave right now, the, the you know, I got my eye on uh, uh, a 10-player uh, poker table with, with 10 chairs. Um, and the, the poker boom, you know, a few years ago, there are lots of people who made these tables or bought these tables, and now they're not interested in poker anymore. And, you know, I like playing poker, but a good gaming table is valuable, you know, uh, whether you're playing poker or Monopoly or, you know, Settlers of Catan or whatever. So uh, I've got a, a guy right now that I'm, I'm communicating with. He wants 350 for the table and 10 chairs. I couldn't go to Walmart and buy 10 folding chairs for much less than 350 um, Right. So sure. it's already a bargain. But I'm trying to barter with him, and just out of the blue, one of my uh, coworkers uh, said, "You know, I, I've, I'm cleaning out my shop, uh, and and we we've got some things we don't need. You want a chainsaw? Okay, I'll take a chainsaw. And so I'm trying to barter the chainsaw, which is probably worth five or six hundred, for the 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 table. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing to to set a goal and say I don't want to spend any money, but I want good stuff." Well, here's what you do, Mark. You stay on the lookout for another foosball table. Say so you get another one, you sell the one you have a hundred in for two fifty. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then you spend another fifty to fix up the other one. And then you've you've created a net gain for your man cave. Yeah. And not only that, but I enjoyed fixing it up, right? So that was a, a half a day of work that I got to do, but it was fun work. Uh, so it was it was not only a diverting project. I got away from the kids for half a day and did some manly stuff and got to smell like grease for a while and got a foosball table out of it. So yeah, I like your I like your thinking, Seth. I just pick up another one and and I know I, I you're right. For what I spent um, to fix this up, I could easily double my money uh, to sell this to somebody else. Well, I got a question for you. You know, last week we spoke about uh, well, somebody I think had written in about a, a multi arcade machine emulator, yes. the MAME stuff. Well, you know, I'm sitting around waiting for something to finish on a computer. So I stumbled on Craigslist myself, and I found a guy locally selling a countertop MAME cabinet uh, on Craigslist. And uh, the reason why I liked it was that the style was really nice. It wasn't too large. It was going to take a lot of room, and it was already set up, ready to go. And I'm thinking, okay, that's uh, perfect. Now, you know, what does he want for it? Um, and he says, I'm only interested in bartering for it. He doesn't want money. 
So um, you guys might have done this before, but I'm I'm a babe in the woods on this one. Where do you start that conversation? How do you say to him, well, what do you want? Do you want – what do you want? Do you what are you want interested a, a, in? A 4,000-square-foot home for this thing or do you want my old dingy phone? I don't, I don't know what you want. No, the question isn't what he wants. The question is what do you want to get rid of? Ah. Yes. So what you say is I've got X that is of roughly the same value, even though it's of no value to you. You want to get rid of it. Um, right. And then, you know, the, he'll either say yes or no, right? Or at that point, he'll say, well, I was really looking for something more in the terms of lawn equipment. And then you, okay, well, now I, I get what you're going for. That kind of thing. Uh, okay. So these alternative currencies are something I'm still getting used to. And I'm the Bitcoin guy. What do you do? <laughs> yeah, no, the, the question isn't, you know, you because you want to win by getting rid of something you don't want and getting something that you do want. And what makes the bartering system work is he has something he doesn't want that he's getting rid of for something that he wants. So it's a win-win situation. You're not out to jip the guy, you know, but you want to come out on top and you want him to come out on top. So you have a good reputation in the bartering community. I, 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 don't, rem I don't remember sorry. who I was reading, but I was reading some uh, business guy and Seth, he said exact opposite of what you said. He said the best deal is where everybody walks away feeling they, like they got screwed, but only a little. That's the best deal. <laughs> well, I I, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to work out where to start the conversation because if somebody says, I got this, I want to barter for something, I just need to know well, what, what are we looking at here or I'm going to go through a whole bunch of communication and waste my time because – it might be your expectations are higher than I'm willing to give, or maybe I haven't got something you want. I mean, I don't really know what they want. Well, if you're going to barter, you have to throw it. time out of the equation. You, you, just, you just have to uh, uh, accept the fact that your time is your currency here. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. So is this stuff best done face-to-face? -face? Is this the sort of thing you go around, have a look at it, and go, mm, well, what do you think? You know, And then you just get that conversation going? You don't have to. I mean, I've done it both ways. Sometimes it's easier if there's email involved because, you know, if, if he thinks, oh, my gosh, he really wants this. I've got a sucker on the line, you know, so if you're not good at covering, if you're not a good poker player, then face to face meetings can be really bad because you'll give away that you want it. And that person will then hold out for much more than he even wants because he thinks he's got a sucker on the other end. I, I so, think the best deal the I think it's best to close the deal in person. Yeah, uh, because you're there and the guy's like, you know, I, I really I, I want more than fifteen hundred dollars for this speedboat. It's just worth more. And then you hold up fifteen one hundred dollar bills and say, you don't want this boat. You want this cash. You called me because you want cash. Which one do you want? You want the boat or you want the cash? And once they see the money, that changes their opinion. Yeah. Or the item, you know, if you're doing a swap. I was going to offer him Satoshis. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed at me. I actually did. I said, well, will you take Bitcoin? He goes, ha, 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 no, no, no. I'm like, oh, fool. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he, he. you probably would have lost on that deal. Like the guy, the first guy who bought a pizza for uh, Bitcoins, you know, at one point it cost him $70,000 for that pizza. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, that was a fun little diversion. Uh, so if you guys out there uh, have any man cave-like stuff that you want to just send me to help me 
complete my goal of the best man cave ever without sending it? I mean, somebody's out there. Somebody out there has, you know, something, a pool table that you don't want. Well, shipping would be ridiculous on that. Actually, I see on Craigslist lots of people saying, just come and take it. Free pool table. Uh, I'm right. moving. I don't want to spend the $3,000 to move it. Um, and in fact, one of my, my good friends did that. It's like, we're moving. You want this pool table? Come get it. And he had a hard time getting somebody to come get it because, and this was a nice, really fancy, you know, uh, eight foot billiards with the the leather net pockets and the, and the, the whole bit, but nobody wanted it because you got to move a pool table then. Right. I know uh, when my brother moved his, he's, he sold the house and, you know, was buying a new one and he was like, oh, this furniture is too big for me to carry. And I helped him move. He's like, okay, so here's the deal. I will help. He's like, you can have this furniture and I will help you move it to wherever, but I will not help you move it again. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I had my other brother come help me move it again when I moved. I, uh, I would Craigslisting. I was uh, made a deal uh, online uh, for uh, a sofa, and I drove to the place and saw that it was third floor. And I'm like, oh, sorry, no, not carrying this down three flights of stairs. Just not doing it. Bye. Yeah, and, you know, we've been talking about bartering so long in Craigslist. You really need to pause this show right now if you're not listening to it live and go to YouTube and watch Weird Al's Craigslist song. Because it nails the spirit of Craigslist. <laughs> it is awesome. It is awesome. And we will wait. <laughs> another See, thing, wasn't that great? <laughs> another thing I've mentioned before, like unto Craigslist, but it's a different ethos, is FreeCycle. Go to FreeCycle.com. It's a collection. It's a loose confederation of local groups uh, that just use FreeCycle.com to you know uh, co- coordinate. Uh, and that's the whole thing is I'm about to throw away X. Anybody want it? Or I want why anybody got one they don't want anymore. Um, free free cycle is is much more again it's all it's much more of a hippie thing than even Craigslist. Um, and it's it's all about you know it's just stuff I don't want. Doesn't mean it's junk. I just don't want it. But you know I have found though just a lower quality of stuff. Um, well, see, I live I live I'm a poor man surrounded by rich people. They throw out really good stuff. So right. it just depends on where you live. Right. Um, I mean, I just today, in fact, when I was making the the um, deal for the surround sound system, I was in a really fancy neighborhood. I mean, it was like I turned onto the street and it was like the estate at Winterbrook. You know, that was kind of like the name of the neighborhood. Um, and out at the trash was one of those uh, um, little giant ladders with the the multi multi-facet thing and one one of the legs was bent a little you know 10 minutes of the crowbar and that's f- brand new i didn't stop and pick it up because i was in a hurry but i really should have uh but it really was just should've. yeah it was just oh it's dented a little i'll throw it out for the trash that's what rich people do i don't ever want to be that rich i want to have money but i also want to still have common sense yeah uncommon sense if it were common more people would have it <laughs> All right, so we don't have any uh, listener feedback this week, uh, mainly because I didn't have time to call it and put it in the notes, so I'm going to go there. Uh, We do have lots of news to go through, but I promised last week that this week we would discuss something that I find interesting, um, and it's it's a complete hypothetical. So the beauty of that is is we can't be wrong. You know, whatever we say is right because it's totally hypothetical, but also uh, probably whatever we say is wrong, Um, but 
the uh, the concept that I that I wanted to talk about is in this the world that is coming. There is no doubt in anyone's mind. I think uh, anybody who's paying attention, we're going to we're rapidly approaching a time when the humans are no longer writing the code or even designing the hardware, but are the caretakers. Is that the right word? The babysitters of the the systems that do. So what does what does that look like? That's the the journey that we're going to go down now. Hypothetically, what does that world look like? Miles, you're a programmer. That's what you do for a living. Mm-hmm. What does your world look like when everything you're doing is tending an AI garden and the AI garden is writing the software? Arthur C. Clarke in 2001: A Space Odyssey um, projected that the HALs, uh, the heuristic algorithmic life forms, the HALs would just be grown up like babies. Um, that you would design this this lump of hardware and that you would, you know, babysit it for four or five or six years. And and the HAL 9000 that, you know, eventually, spoiler alert, uh, went homicidal uh, because it had two incongruous uh, prime uh, instructions um, that reacted in the same way because it was designed heuristically. It reacted in the same way a human would and went a little nuts. Um, there are people who are chasing that line of, of technology, not making computers nuts, but fa- mimicking the way humans do things. Um, Google has some of that going on, but also uh, there's another group that says, let's not give it any parameters at all. Let's just do thumbs up, thumbs down, positive and negative rewards and see what happens. Um, I talked a little bit about that last week in the context of the Connect software, the software that became Microsoft Connect. Um, they didn't... They didn't write that code. There isn't, I mean, it's not, it's not fair to say there isn't code to write, but the bulk of it, the, the business part of that um, was organically uh, manufactured. Yeah, I can't think of a, even a good way to put it. They, they tended the tree, so to speak, pruning the things they didn't want to grow and feeding the things they did want to grow and created the software that can intelligently recognize a human of any size in any posture holding objects and can recognize that it's holding an object in this hand versus that hand standing on one foot. Um, and this, the software to write that would just be mind bogglingly complex. So they just didn't. So that's what, that's what I want to talk about. So having thrown that out there, miles, I want to hear your perspective as a coder. Oh, okay. Uh, we've, I've been a coder since 1979. You can believe that. Um, and this was promised back in the early 80s. I remember there was a program, I think it was on the TRS-80 Model 1 that came out, I think, about 1980, that was a, a sort of a vision of this software that would develop software, and I cannot for the life of me remember the name of it. I just remember that having encountered it back then, it seemed kind of interesting and then depressing at the same time because I thought, well, I want to become a programmer. Is this going to be my endpoint here is that i'm going to write something that's going to put me out of business um but you know it never happened and the reason why it never happened was that uh software is an interesting animal it's uh good software is all about leverage in other words you you write some low level code like an operating system or something like that and then you hopefully never have to worry about that ever again because you're going to sit on top of it the next layer which might be a file manager system. And then on top of that, you're going to 
put another layer which might be a, a NAS or a, you know, a, a, a Dropbox or whatever. And, and we, as we go up in the layers, we're relying on everything that came before us. The problem is that we are in a world where everything is platform-based. So if you are a, well, you know, to go back maybe 10, 20 years when life was a little simpler, um, you used to be either a Windows guy or you were a Mac guy or maybe you were a Linux guy. It was that sort of thing. You worked in those platforms. It was impossible to get software that was written on one to work on the other. So you could never achieve cross-platform leverage. You couldn't write a library in Windows and then write something to use it on top of a Mac. And eventually, as you're sort of going up the pyramid, you get to the point at the very top. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's software hierarchy of of um, futuristic, you know, advancement. The, the higher up the chain you get, the more likely you reach that utopian point where the software can write itself. Well, if, you, if your platform that you're building on keeps changing underneath you, you never have enough traction to be able to get up that way. So this might sound a little kind of complicated way to explain it, but at the end of the day, I don't see that we're going to be in a position where we can collectively have software that writes software until there is one platform to rule them all that all software can run on or one language that everybody uniformly agrees is the way to go or one set of library interfaces that works across all these different devices. In fact, exactly the opposite is happening. We're doing remarkable things with uh, telephones and with cars and with, um, you know, Internet of Things and all these new technologies that are coming about, but every single one of them runs on something different. Some run on some device with an ARM chip in them and someone else has got something that runs on a PowerPC chip and somebody else has got something that runs on Intel. And the code in one can't be used in the other. So we never get, unless one little team develops software that can write itself, it can only write itself on that refrigerator or on that car or on that smartwatch or whatever you know they're never going to get anything that works across the board to everything else um i i see it more as a human factor you've got factions that want to achieve software that writes itself but they can't communicate with other factions or they seem themselves as competitive with other factions and as a result no one wins <laughs> and um the greatest advancement that we got even close to uh getting closer to this utopian point was probably open source because at that point all the egos left the room <laughs> right everybody had to put their code out there and then you could take that code and cross compile it and things could get built on top of apache or on top of php or on top of python or whatever it was and eventually you've got something that everybody could share and then we could all build something that would be towards the goal of not ever having to write anything ever again but that's not really happening anymore. And I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's happening, but it's just not happening at the level it was. And I'm not sure where we sit right now in the in the whole journey forward. But I, I, I don't know. Does that, it doesn't, does that answer your question at all? Well, you know, sure. Uh, just I wrote down a, a couple of things as you were talking there because I, I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but you, you got me thinking about things. So uh, that to, to, to talk about that last point where you said um, th there's a platform problem. We're in the process now of solving that with what I call the smart collection of dumb things. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about it before. You don't need 
the the Jarvis that can run your house, you need a bunch of dumb things that know when to turn on switches. Um, and collectively, they are Jarvis. Uh, and and I think that the you don't need a platform; you need a protocol. And we have right. protocols. We have protocols being written now. Um, you know that was sort of the promise of IP. The Internet Protocol was disparate devices speaking the same language, and it made this conversation we're having right now possible. Three guys in three different time zones um, having a conversation in near real time because the hardware is different. Miles, you're using a Mac, right? Uh, yes. Sir. Yeah. And Seth, you're on a, a Windows laptop, I know, yep. and I'm and I'm using a Windows desktop. Uh, so three different platforms, three different internet uh, service providers, three different probably ways of getting internet to you. Um, and that all works because of the same protocol. So I think that your concept of uh, platform being the problem is going to be fixed with protocols. As long as this platform can speak that language, then, then the system can intelligently code across platforms. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I'd, I'd say things like REST as an API is a really good step forward. Um, the problem is, though, that pr- uh, platforms allow two trusted authorities to communicate so that Skype on Windows, Skype on Mac, Skype on Linux can communicate because it's all Skype. It trusts each other. We don't have anywhere near the level of trust with non um, or uh, anonymous clients to things. So if I write a, a web service and you want to connect to it, I have to publish everything about my web service so that you know what it can do and how to call it and what it can achieve and, and everything else. And I'm trusting that you're you know, the right sort of person to be communicating with the web service. I'm putting it out there with that level of trust. Um, the Which protocols, is the problem that we see all the time that the internet was built by hippies uh, in colleges, you know, in between uh, free love rallies. Uh, and really, that's that's the people who created the internet, and we are running into today that problem of you 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 turns out you can't trust all packets that come into your system. Who, who'd have thought that there yeah. would be such a thing as a distributed denial of service attack? We have no mechanism for stopping that. The, the underlying protocols, the, the, the bones of the system, cannot prevent a DDoS. Just can't. The only way to do it is to write it out. Uh, and yep. so that's, a, that's a, a manifestation of the kind of things you're talking about. So if we, if we cast forward a few centuries, or not even that, just a couple of generations, when you've got system intelligent systems writing code with and for one another, essentially writing their own APIs... Seth, it's, is that a dream, or do you think that we'll have a system smart enough to write their own API so that they can talk to each other? Dude, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things to where, at least in previous generations where you've had computers and stuff write their own code, the code was always crappy compared to what a human could do because it wasn't like optimized it was just something that worked so i'm sure in the future that would be addressed but you know um as of now i mean that is the scary thought because then you get stuff happening and you don't know what happens and it's the the law of unintended consequences and i don't know where i'm going with this but if that happens, then, you know, really work becomes over 
at that point. Actually, I would you, think. You, you're touching on the core of this, actually. I, I think you are. Um, one thing that we did about, became popular about 10 years ago in software design is a concept of uh, design frameworks or design patterns. And what happened was a lot of people sort of stepped away from the code and looked at what they were building and started realizing there were commonality between all, all things that people had to write. And uh, one of the very popular uh, design patterns, one that I use a lot, is called um, uh, MVC or Model View Controller. And without getting all technical about it, what it does is it separates the user interface away from the underlying functions that transform things uh, and then further away from the underlying storage mechanisms like databases and so on. So what, what that means is that you can have a database of your choosing as whatever you want to store stuff. You can then have a middleware layer which sits in there transforming things. So it pulls something out of the database and it turns it into something that's kind of real. You know, some real information, real logical stuff, answers a real question. And then on the front side of it, you've got the, the whole concept of the user interface, what the end user actually sees. So if the end user is, could be anywhere, anytime on any device, what you're talking about is the protocols that would communicate with the layers that eventually answers the question. Um, very interesting thing happened this week. If you guys were, were watching the news, Google did this big unveiling of their new uh, phone and they had a big kind of a expo unveiling thing going on. And the one thing that's, that I heard very loudly that I don't know if necessarily a great deal of journalists heard from this was this uh, complete movement towards what Google has already tried to be their secret source, and that is artificial intelligence is the platform. And they cited at the very start of this presentation that it used to be that we had, you know, with the internet came around, we had the web as being the platform. And then eventually that became mobile. Everyone wanted mobile technology. That became the platform. And Google today are saying the new platform is artificial intelligence. What they mean by that the easiest way I think of it is Siri, that you ask a question to this thing that's out there somewhere in the in the ether, and it returns back to you an answer. And that the knowledge that that thing has is based on the collection of all of the knowledge of people's searches and their photographs and their web stuff and their emails and everything Google's churning and learning about the world to be able to answer any future question that you can have. And their entire uh, technology platform is, here's a phone that works with our AI engine. Here's a, you know, like a Alexa type thing that works with our AI system. Here's a car that works with our AI system. If that AI system is learning from all of the exper uh, experiences it gets from data, at some point it will also learn how to solve problems. It will, it will have to write its own code. You know, to do more complicated things, and eventually you will reach the utopia you're talking about. Google, they want to get there faster than anybody else. I remember watching in early 90s, maybe late 80s, uh, a Discovery show back before Discovery was all naked people in dangerous situations swearing at each other. Um, it was, uh, they had a series of shows about predicting, you know, what based on today, what is the next thing going to be? And that, uh, I, I don't remember the show. Maybe the next step. That was one that I like to watch. Uh, they use the term 
that I heard for the first time on Discovery Channel in maybe 89 or 91, somewhere around that area, fuzzy logic. And Seth, that's the concept where you're talking about of computers write crappy code, um, but you fuzz the parameters. And the, the, the context of fuzzy logic was in a toaster that decides when your toast is toasted. Instead of a knob that says, you know, warm or, or light or dark or whatever, the toaster decides when your toast is toasted. Now, I don't have one of those toasters. I don't know that they exist. But I do have a microwave that has a plate of food button. It's the same thing. It intelligently, but dumbly, uh, measures and uh, writes dumb code and checks that dumb code thousands of times per second. And thousands of times per second today is really slow, right? That's a, a, a kilohertz. <laughs> it's a thousand. That's super slow. So my microwave is dumb by standards, but it can still make a measurement a couple of thousand times per second and decide when my plate of food is hot. I don't know how it does it. It's magic. It's a box. It, it's a black box. I put stuff in and I get warm food back out. But it's that same concept of fuzzy, fuzzy logic. The, the, a box, a, a computer is a box of rocks that does nothing, but it does nothing really fast. Um, and that's essentially how this works. So yes, they'll, they'll write bad code. They'll refine that code. They'll write better bad code. And then they'll refine that code. And a computer can do that today 4 billion times per second. In 20 years, they'll be doing it 400 trillion times per second, uh, you know, if we follow Moore's law. Um, so the, the I think the bad code becomes not a problem because we don't have to optimize anymore. You know, who optimizes code anymore? When, when, when storage is uh, 90 bucks uh, per 4 terabytes, nobody optimizes for space anymore. They just don't. Uh, even in the smartphone market, they just don't. And nobody optimizes for, um, you know, cycles nobody anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right now, looking, I'm uh, running my i5 Intel Nook. I've got it looking right now. And um, Firefox, the just Firefox, is one, uh, uh, two windows, is consuming 14% of my CPU. Um, my overall CPU right now being used is 82%. Uh, and there's no one thing that really sticks out. They're all, uh, you know, Hangouts is using 30%. Uh, but my point is, there's no reason for a browser with two windows open to use, now it's up to 19% uh, of my my processing power. It's not doing anything. But it's because Firefox stopped optimizing sometime in like 2005. And just hasn't any at all. Nobody does anymore. Even the great Google doesn't optimize. I mean, Google is a uh, Chrome is a pig in terms of memory and uh, processor because they can be. So the yep. you say computers write crappy code. So do humans now. Yeah, well, that's true. Also, don't forget also that there are dimensions of advancement here as well. There's there's the concept of speed and quantity and scaling that has to be done, and and those things. Probably optimization helps a lot in terms of maximizing the advantages and benefits of that. But there's also uh, there's, there's a part of this which is kind of interesting to me. Um, McDonald's recently started to reduce their labor force uh, with the advent of self-serve uh, kiosks that you can go into the restaurant and press you know buttons on a screen and then your burger pops out on the other end. And... Um, a lot of a lot of the people felt that that was a response to a minimum wage uh, issue 
politically that they wanted to reduce their labor costs down because the labor was starting to say, hey, we want 15 bucks an hour. And, and they're saying, look, you're going to be replaced with that silk, you know, touchscreen machine over there. So, you know, don't go there. Well, in the end, the touchscreen machine came along anyway, and they're starting to roll out everywhere. So you've got a situation there where McDonald's have worked out a way where their own technology can build their own burgers. Eventually, they'll get rid of the burger flipper and a machine, a robot will do it. The thing is, is that what you want? Because if I want to go out and get something to eat, I maybe I want to go to a three Michelin star restaurant in Paris. I don't know. I'm not going to expect to get that level of of mechanics there, but the knowledge that's in the head of the head chef at, at that restaurant is priceless and it's not the McDonald's kiosk. And I think if we, if we enter a world where code writes code, robots do what robots do and, and everything becomes that, the thing I fear is that the world becomes just one collection of McDonald's restaurants. And I don't know if that's a good thing. I think I want to have the opportunity to go and see, you know, chef, Jean-Claude whatever and his great roasted duck. I mean, I'd want to eat that versus a Big Mac. Well, and and that will always be there. I don't think the that technology has ever pushed out snobbery. Um, that's still going to be there. But when I just want a quick Big Mac, I don't want to have a conversation with an, uh, a worker who doesn't care if I get fed or not. You know, that, that, that McDonald's employee has the same amount of empathy as a kiosk would. Welcome to McDonald's in a day yard, please. I'd like a, a Big Mac, that, please. <laughs> Go ahead. A, a lot of that comes, and, and this is a little off topic, but, you know, we wouldn't be the show if it wasn't. That comes down to the individual working the counter. When I was an assistant manager, I had employees that you give me this one employee and I can make the store work better than if you give me those seven employees. And this one employee in the early 2000s was worth $20 an hour because of how awesome they did their job. And so, you know. But the the, the problem is systemic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I went to Walmart recently to get a balloon inflated. That was it. One balloon inflated. It took four people and 35 minutes, and when I got it back, uh, it didn't float. I'm not sure what they put in it, but it didn't float. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, tell me how a machine doesn't do that better. Uh, so the problem is that you know we have the systemic problem of, of people. Uh, we, we're having a hard time finding good people to even do the stupid jobs that a robot could do. So I, I, don't, I don't think I, – I have never seen been worried about a robot – replacing a good worker the robots only replace mediocre workers so miles uh your burgers may be made by robots but your gourmet meals won't be at least not for a very long time uh, unless the robots are able to synthesize the knowledge and experience that the chef has in his restaurant well if they can does, then does it matter if you get a good meal does it matter who made it no not at all it doesn't not to me not to me. No, I'm, I'd be happy for a machine to be able to produce that quality. I absolutely would. I'm just not sure whether we, as a society, want to give up the the special source, if you like, the, the right. secrets of what that chef has. I don't think that chef wants to give it up for his own uh, you know, protection. I don't think the companies want to share across the board, and I don't think we'll ever get to that point, at least not straight away. 
Um, but the thing is about what makes a great chef. Let's go with that the, that thing. What makes a great chef is twenty years of burns and and bad nights and and cooking an omelet uh, every thirty seven seconds for twenty five years until you can do an omelet without thinking. That's what makes a great chef. Well, a robot could do all of that in uh, a couple of uh, you know weeks instead of twenty years. So it, the the secret sauce. Everybody knows how to cook. Every you you apply seasoning, you apply heat. The, this is not a problem. Everybody knows how to cook, but to know how to cook well is an experience thing. The the you know the greatest culinary genius didn't start there. They started with a, as a person with talent, and then through years of burns and and bad dishes, became good cooks. Computers are going to be able to do that. So I don't think there is any secret sauce. I really don't. Uh, it's just a matter of dev- designing a system that can accelerate that process um, and can you know hold that knowledge. And then at that point, it becomes imprintable. You only have to train one machine once. Although Arthur C. Clarke, his, he, you know, I, I'm not saying that he knows everything, but his thought was you can't replicate it. It can only be done once per system. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe learning is so unique. Um, oh, I just did it. So unique. It either is or isn't unique. There's no variability in uniqueness. Maybe uh, learning is so unusual that it can only be done one time. Maybe you could never transfer learning. I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about. You could if- G4L that hard drive, baby. <laughs> then you've, you've copied learning because somewhere that knowledge is stored. Um, you know, whether it be a flash, a spinning disk you know, a floppy disk, a thumb drive in the cloud. So all you have to do is copy and then, and you've replicated it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like imagine here's the thing that the chef can do, the machine can't, that the machine would kill to get, and that's taste. The chef can taste the food before it goes out and determine whether it's suitable to serve. The machine cannot do that. Maybe it can do it with a spectrometer or some way of, analyzing certain chemical aspects of the food but there's that that human side that represents this is good or this is bad and that's what the human could do but if the machine can obtain that knowledge through whatever means whether it's you know it's out there capturing all this stuff in the cloud it's it's learning it's doing whatever it can when it can obtain that knowledge the machine then can replace the chef because it knows how to put together what what the chef says is good is this math- mathematical argument or, or what the chef said is bad is this mathematical argument. So I'll sample it. I'll look at what the argument is and I'll determine this is good or this is bad. If it's good, it goes out to the next step. And if it's bad, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that the Pandora method, the thumbs up, thumbs down method is better at that than years of burning uh, souffles. Mm-hmm. Uh, because w- once you figure out any time this uh, the combination of molecules come together at this temperature, people like it. Then you don't have to taste it. You just know this is what people like. Um, and so I think that's actually a fairly easy problem to solve once you have the machine that can assemble the ingredients. The, the, the figuring out what is good, we know how to do that. Um, it's certainly not perfect. But like for example, when I go to Netflix... Uh, a lot of people complain about the Netflix en- uh, recommendation engine and how poor it is. In my case, almost every time Netflix recommends something, I already own it. Um, so that that is indicative of two things. One, I'm, I'm, I've kind of got a problem about DVDs, and I own so many that I own most of Netflix catalog. But also, 
um, it it has the recommendation is so good it's not useful anymore because it can only recommend recommend things I already have. But that's that's a, a success of failure, right? It's so good, uh, a failure of success, I should say. The the recommendation is, engine is so good it's useless to me. But we know how to do that now. Pandora, I, I keep going back to that. Not that they're good at, it, but they they were just the ones that everybody knows. Everybody knows that in a very short order of time, you can make sure Pandora only plays a song you like. It's that's not hard. the The tr- problem is you may play the same song that you like sixteen times in a day. Um, variety becomes an issue there. Uh, so there's always a limitation to the the implementation of it. But there, I have not seen a limitation in the ability of a machine to figure out what people like. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Let your original question or premise of the conversation was based on uh, code software. I would submit that on all the things that we've been speaking about, actually the software and the code is pretty irrelevant in this because I think that from an anthropological perspective, humans won't give up what humans don't want to give up for their own power position. And that also means code. And for code to be able to write code, it has to be all-encompassing. You have to have something for everything. I think your point is right about APIs. If there are a lot of services out there and maybe they charge a service to do their thing, whether it's a mapping service or an AI service or a how-to-make-great-burgers service or whatever it is, if we all integrate with those services using some common protocol, then all of a sudden it doesn't mean matter about code, right? It's all about how we use the huge array of services that are out there on the internet. And in fact, the services become the chips of what we used to put on a circuit board. Um, and you just connect to them as you need them and, and you just put it together and present it to your, uh, your end customer and job done. So what you're saying, if I if I can paraphrase you to make sure I'm mm-hmm. understanding, Skynet will never come to be because too many mid-level executives want to keep their job. Well, they, they want to control their power domain. You know, Amazon won't give up everything. They'll give up a certain amount to be able to help their own benefit. But if it won't, they're not they're not going to give up their uh, book suggestion engine to the world unless there's something in it for them. Um, so I'm I think that ultimately those things will slow down the you know progression eventually you know open source changed that but like i said you know now the really cool tech is not in the open source space what do you think seth will will human mediocrity and the love of 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 avarice save us from our robot overlords no because it only takes one person it only takes one person to break rank you know once you once that because unless you can figure out some way to make the machine unlearn it, once one machine learns it in this scenario, then that gets assimilated to every other machine. And then we know we lost that advantage. And then so everybody guards these other advantage. And then this one person says, you know, I'm tired of doing this. I'm going to give up mine. And then the next thing you know, everybody's given up everything and nothing's left to guard. So you're saying one wide eyed idealist can ruin it for all of us. Or, you know, one tired old curmudgeon who doesn't care anymore can also ruin it for all of us. Hmm. So, you know, we've we've kind of moved into the whole dystopian. It, it always it ends, either ends up being utopian or dystopian. You're either in uh, Roddenberry's world or in, um, I can't think the of real just, I can't think of a dystopian off the top of my head, uh, Lovecraft's world. Um, 
you know, you, there's there's never seems to be anybody in between. You know, uh, um, the iRobot, the Will Smith version of it, not the not the book, um, pictured a world where there was uh, machinism. Right, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 I don't know what you would call it, but you know, my my father lost his job to a machine. These these blankety blank machines, um, and that's an interesting concept. I, I don't recall it being in Asimov's book originally, but you know, creative license and all that. Um, I think I think there's kind of no way to to avoid that. At some point, somebody's going to lose their job to a machine and be mad about it. Uh, you know, that's the whole Uyghur rebellion. Uh, the the uh, the I can't remember. Where it was, they threw their spinning wheels. Uh, they I can't remember the thing, but anyway, basically, people uh, mad about a machine doing their job decided to break the machines. It didn't stop anything. It never will. You know, uh, when Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, uh, a lot of uh, you know low-paid and slave workers um, lost their job, and none of them complained about it because it was a job nobody wanted to do. So it all depends on is it a job somebody wants to do or not. When we invent the toilet plunging robot. Uh, the plumbers aren't going to mine. Uh, yeah, there we go. The thank you, Rick. The Dutch, the sabos, the the concept of sabotage. That's what I was thinking of. He read my mind. Um, so uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Star Trek Six. Okay. Anyway, um, the the point is that I was trying to make is is there are some jobs that we will hold on to. Uh, Miles, to your point, uh, we're not we're going to hold on to that because. We like this. We as humans like doing this, and we don't want to lose this job. There are some jobs that nobody will ever miss if a machine starts doing it. Uh, what's interesting, though, is uh, Seth. To your point, how do you how do you build those barriers between the two? Now we've veered way off the subject of of a code that writes itself, but it's still it's part and parcel of the same discussion. How do you erect a barrier between the the scut work that nobody wants to do and you know ruling the human race? I don't know. Um, there was a, uh, we had the guy on um, the show a while back who uh, his podcast was like theater for the mind. You remember? Yes. yes. Uh, I, I cannot remember his name, but one of the, when I was listening to that podcast, one of the episodes was set in this like utopian like future where machines made everything and people who handcrafted stuff kind of did it in secret underground and that was people's job was to identify handcrafted stuff and try to find the criminals doing it and when they finally like it comes down and that you know the the good guy working for the system finally cracks the location of where these you know handcrafters are working and he uh, breaks the case and busts up the ring and so now everything's machine made and all of a sudden he spends all of his time on the beach in Hawaii and it became a very boring life because there was no adventure anymore because the machines did everything and it was like yay I, I live on the beach but it's boring because all I ever do is live on the beach so there was there was no excitement left in his life well, you know, uh, we keep bringing up science fiction authors because they're the people who think about this stuff and have been and have inspired us to think about it. H.G. Wells' Time Machine sort of was that same thing. There's the subterranean Morlocks that are uh, evil, and then there's the the um, surface-dwelling utopia. So dystopia and utopia living side-by-side, uh, side, uh, one feeding off of the other, uh, so to speak. That's that's another theme, too. Um 
And, and that's kind of where we live right now in the technology world, right? Um, uh, I have the, the utopia of the fact that I can ask my phone, you know, okay, Google, uh, what's the square root of 25,378? Um, and it can tell me. But also, if I say, okay, Google, um, what time does the Best Buy near me close? It's most likely going to give me the wrong answer. Uh, it's both utopia and dystopia side by side. Um, we're living in that world. Of course, we're trying to we're trying to push things toward the utopian side. But um, the, to to come full circle back to where we go, when software is writing itself, does human error no longer play into it? Or because the original code, the progenitor code, was written by humans, will it always be flawed? Philosophical no, thought. The software will get refactored. It'll get changed and improved over time. It'll get maintained. It'll get bug fixes. It'll get optimization. Um, and eventually it'll hit a certain point where everyone says, okay, stop. We need to use this for the machines need to use this to create the next, you know, uh, uh, what's the term? Uh, we, polymorphism, uh, where we take the, we inherit the uh, code from one original class and then we just create stamped like a you know like a cookie cutter stamp would just go next 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 we do that today in object orientation we just take an original class of code and then we just create a, a an instantiation of that and then we just simply make some overrides to change some slight behavior and then you you know you move forward and that's the premise of object orientation in code right. but can that be refined that for a long time. can that be refined to the point of perfection by a machine uh, only if you can go back to the original class that everything yeah. inherited from. So your 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 theory then is that utopia isn't possible. I'm putting words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. Because the original system was designed by flawed humans, therefore perfection can never arise from it. Yes, and that's why we have version 2 and version 3 and version 4 of things. Because at some point, it no longer becomes worthy of maintenance. And you just need to burn the thing to the ground and start all over again. But you take the knowledge of what you learned from the previous experiences and you try to level up each time. And that's, you know, ultimately what the machines will eventually do. Seth, your thoughts? From that. You know, I don't know. Once once you get to where something can write itself, I mean, I know, you know, you have like the the four laws or whatever and, um, you know, various science fiction writers address it in different ways. But, you know, the machine can't, you know, get added source files to completely rewrite itself. I don't see how such a thing would be possible in real life. You can get to the point to where a machine can write something that isn't based on humanity anymore. I think that thing, I think such a thing would be possible and that would be very frightening. So uh, to, to, to okay. piggyback on, um, sorry, Miles, to, to come back sort of what we were talking about, the, the concept of code that writes itself, uh, what I hear both of you saying is that um, flaws in, introduced into a system must be removed by something external to that system. Uh, would, do we agree that that is a truth, that, that a, a system can never repair its own flaws completely? Yes, because the system cannot be the genesis of creation. It has to build from something that already exists. Okay. Seth? I I honestly don't know. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, we, you, you have to give an answer because, you know, this is fantasy land. But uh, <laughs> it's an interesting thought. Uh, the um, Because anything we write, because because no humans are perfect, 
any code we write is imperfect. We, Therefore, even when the code is writing itself, it'll be pro- progenitating imperfect code. You know, if you look at it from a mathematical standpoint, and it can always improve half as much, so it's never going to reach everything, but it's going to get infinitely closer. So in that sense, okay. no, it will never be able to remove all of the imperfections. It can simply refine its ability to mitigate them to a finer detail. To so it's an it asymptotic is. curve from totally borked to, to almost perfect. Right. Always <laughs> approaching, but never equaling. I like it. I mean, yeah, you know, it, if you think about it, it that's got to be the machine way. Well, there's also the issue of, of machine competitiveness. Like, if, imagine if a machine, if you, you wrote some code and then that code was, you know, inherited and, and machines took it over and they made it better and better and better. And eventually all the machines are relying on the stability of that code for their very existence. So they don't want to change anything. And then you come along and go, you know what? I don't really know if I like that old code I wrote 10 years ago. I'm just going to burn it to the ground and start all over again. At what point do the machines say, uh-uh-uh, and they stop you right there and then because there's too much that has been leveraged off what already exists and you cannot break the chain. So what you just described is the entire business arc of Microsoft. Pretty much. That yeah. the concept of legacy, uh, not breaking legacy, breaks current systems because you have to keep supporting things. So Microsoft has showed us the future, and the future is Windows 10. <laughs> oh, that's bad. So you have to skip <laughs> Windows 9 because of the crappy code you wrote before. <laughs> you can't have 9x in the picture. And uh, But, you know, but here's the thing. I don't know. Could you then... If you know how to write code, could you then not transplant yourself outside into a system that you that you were responsible for starting? Whoa! Could yes, Bitcoin yes. jump out of the blockchain and form its own blockchain? That's, I mean, no. you know, <laughs> if, if you if you have the Bitcoin analogy, you're forever stuck in the blockchain and you can trace it all the way back to, oh, me make fire. Um, but if you have like, I don't know, virus hopping, um, air gapping, stealth technology, then it gets to the point to where, you know, I'm tired of this suit. I want a new Edgar suit. And then so it just goes out <laughs> and gets one. See, that's the difference between humans and machines. We get tired of things when they just repeat over and over again. Machines love that stuff, right? That's what they're living for. So we would always be at odds. But could a machine not desire for, you know, eventually it gets to the point, you know, I'm tired of taking 25 ones and zeros. I bet I can do this in 24. I bet I can do this in 23. You know, if I forget binary, I'm sure if I just jump to a trinary system, it would be even easier. And at that point, we would be cut out of the loop. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, jumping off of that, if the machines are told by their creators to constantly improve themselves, then then yeah, that they're following... (laughs) So now you have the Borg, and you have V'ger, and you have uh, Tron Legacy. Those three movies just appeared in this conversation right there. I fight for the user! (laughs) (laughs) Or the machines protect themselves by creating an artificial reality that we humans live in, and now you have the Matrix. (laughs) Man. So that's, you know, those things we just said is, is evidence that smarter people than us have been contemplating this for a long time. I didn't, again, I didn't expect to have any answers, just an interesting conversation. So uh, let's wrap this up. One question. Uh, Miles, 
technology the savior of humanity or the the doom bringer of humanity um it is the savior of humanity because without it we will not be able to colonize other planets seth savior or destructor the savior of humans the destructor of humanity oh okay i'll go Um, deep on you there i come down on the side of broadenberry uh and that we'll by making things better we will uh humans will be freed up to make themselves better only a human can improve a human but too many people can't chase that goal they can't follow life liberty and pursuit of happiness because they're too busy trying to tie shoes and wash dishes so i think technology makes humanity better growing in parallel with humanity and never superseding humanity well, I'm, I'm going with the Elon Musk principle that we're all doomed. We're going to blow this planet up, so we better put some, some other humans somewhere else in case, you know, we lose this yeah. place. So, so you're rooting for data and not lore, <laughs> basically. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, wow, I just blanked on, on his name, uh, physicist in a wheelchair. Um, Hawking. Hawking. Yeah. Hawking says that we should not chase AI. It's a bad thing. It can only lead to destruction. Um, you know, and he's in every way smarter than I am. Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, Kurzweil, on the other hand, another guy who's in every way smarter than I am. I know I said his name wrong. Don't write me emails. Um, he says that, uh, that human, that technology will supersede humanity, that it's a given, but, uh, it will be a benign superseding because the, we are the, the grandparents and it will want to take care of us. Um, I don't know that either of those things are true, but it's, I come down more on the side of Kurzweil than of of uh, Hawking. I would hopeful for Kurzweil, but if humanity is creating it, humanity does not have a good track record for creating any type of utopia. Yeah, and of course, then uh, as Rick in the chat room is saying. Um, there is already the theory that humanity will create an artificial reality, and if they will, then they already have, and we're already in the matrix, and this is just a simula- simulation running on somebody's desktop computer as a screensaver. <laughs> There's People have done the math, and you can actually mathematically prove that we're a screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> math. Why can't they fix my wife's car, then? <laughs> Because that's not in the code. Because it's a damaged pixel, and it's just we're stuck with it. Because humans need a certain amount of misery, and we can't we can't be happy in a perfect world. Thank you, Agent Smith. (laughs) Yes. If you wanted geeks ranting, this is the show right here, people. We lived up to our name in this show. You don't get much more geeky than you just got and there was definitely some good ranting so i'm gonna say that's good right there um we'll do this news stuff we've been putting it off three weeks but news doesn't have news is a flexible term it can be olds it can be relatively recent it's fine um we'll cover some of this stuff later but uh, tell us what happened this week in history okay this is a pretty cool one so i'm we're going way back in time to october the 11th 1887, the Comptometer inventor receives a patent. 
Dor E. Felt, which is a man, was granted a patent for the Comptometer. He experimented with an adding device that he built in a macaroni box. The Comptometer and adder displayed a single register of results. Subtraction was carried out by nines complement arithmetic and multiplication by repeated addition. The Comptometer was a commercial success for businesses and Comptometer schools were established in the early 20th century to teach the efficient operations of this machine. You can read more about it. Uh, well, I put a link in Wikipedia, but they held on to real world uses into the nineties um, because, because of how you could do it. It actually was, you could do certain tasks faster on this than adding numbers on a calculator. So that happened this week in history. The Comptometer was uh, patented. That's crazy to think that some piece of technology lived a hundred years. I mean, Lots of technologies lived a hundred years, but that a computer lived a hundred years. Yeah, and you know, and on, and it wasn't a computer; it was an adding machine. This is like a, this is like the computer's grand, great granddaddy. You know, once removed that from this family side, nobody talks about. But you can trace the origins of the computer came through the, you know, comptometer, comptrometer, however you want to say it. Um, but that happened this week in history in. 1887 there were computers wow. before these things that fit in your hand that's true uh, i've seen uh, youtube videos of uh kids in i think japan some they're, they're obviously asian forgive my um ethnocentricity here um using an abacus at like lightning speed you know this ancient uh i'm gonna go with china since the abacus was invented there they were chinese yep. students um and you know the old technologies this is a pet peeve i've said many times uh, obsolescence is a term we throw around it's obsolete because there's something newer no obsolete means it doesn't do its job anymore the abacus still does its job problem is nobody uses them um my granddad was a whiz with a slide rule <laughs> man he could he could do a slide rule faster than i could do a calculator um it's just we just have moved on to different things anyway aside from an aside uh okay uh any other okay this is the part of the show where i tell you how you can tell us what you think uh you go to elementop.com click the contact us button at the top of the page fill out the world's hardest captcha um for example what grows in a cornfield if you put weeds hint hint that's a correct answer too um uh and uh then answer the fill out the form that gets uh, a message that gets priority in my end basket or you can send an email to um uh, geek rant at elementop.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 559IMOP. That's our Google voice line. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on the show. Um, this was as geeky as it gets, folks. This was almost right up there with, with Chris and Seth trying to teach me to play D&D. Um, <laughs> almost. Uh, so uh, what do you think? Um, were we wrong? Of course we were. Were we right? Of course we were. Which one do you think you want to comment on? Let us know at elementop.com. Dot com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, but frankly, I never check those. Um, somebody want to volunteer to be my social media manager? I will give you the keys to the kingdom because <laughs> I just, I don't, I just don't. I'm not, I'm, I'm an old fuddy daddy. Um, I just don't. So anybody want to volunteer to do that? Sure. I, I will let you do that. Um, I'm going to need three references and an FBI background check, but otherwise bring it on. Yeah, and your um, Bitcoin wallet address. Oh, there's a good one. <laughs> oh, <dear>. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity, thus making you a better hiring option? Okay, well, this ties in with um, the TV-centric episode we did last week. Um, there is a television show. It came out of the UK, and it's called Dead Set. And it was what happened if the zombie apocalypse struck a Big Brother set. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it's uh you know it, it's uh there's like it's only like five episodes long so this could only you know this if you you could binge watch it one night and screw up during your big interview the next day so there's hope for me on this one but um it's called dead set and it's you know it's the zombie outbreak uh and how it affects big brother um it's pretty cool there there's some funny parts um you know some horror parts um interesting show and i linked to a um if you follow the link it takes you to a place where you know it gives some like reviews and stuff on it but i watched it on netflix i'm not sure if it's on amazon prime but um it came out i was surprised it came out like eight years ago and you know i tend to i always thought i knew a lot of the zombie stuff but i had not heard of this one but dead set it's a british uh show enjoy Uh, I got to check that out. Uh, Just uh, because you brought up the subject uh, media, I watched uh, episode one of Luke Cage last night. Uh Uh, Meh. I'm certainly willing to give it an episode two, but the first episode was really slow in developing. Um, And and that's okay. You've got a 13 or 14 uh, show arc. You can take some time. But it it didn't grab me like some of the others did. And also, I saw Star Trek Beyond yesterday. Um, I gotta say, same review of that one. Meh. Uh, it really felt like the la- the third act was just tacked on. Like they, uh, spoiler alert, three, two, one. They got all the guys back that had been captured, and they were like, "Oh man, we're only forty seven minutes into this movie. We got to do something else." That's just how it felt. Uh, watching that third act. I hated the fact that another spoiler alert, and so fast forward just a little bit more. <laughs> Why do they have to keep destroying the Enterprise? <laughs> so they can make a new thing every time and but, make it cooler every time. Okay, but destroy it at the end, not in the opening <laughs> credits. You know, it's the Enterprise, and it is parcel to all things Star Trek. You know, unless you're going to have Star Trek colon another, you know, vessel's name, it's got to center around the Enterprise. And... You know, not the crew that used to be on the Enterprise 20 years ago before the ship blew up. Um, anyway, that was you, you just you took out one of the main characters at the beginning and it just not cool. Uh, I will say, uh, about one tenth as many lens flares in this one. So, you know, Abrams has been chastened. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Okay. Uh, all right. So I, I, I wanted more, but I don't regret having seen it. I paid 20 bucks for the DVD, actually the Blu-ray, Blu-ray download from Google Play, but uh, I don't regret the $20 I spent on it, but uh, it's probably not going to be in my, you know, r- regular re- rewatch list. Anyway. I would agree with that. <laughs> Rick says, uh, it's going to be like DS9, to boldly go, no place at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us, folks. Spoilers and all. Um, uh, Miles, Seth, as always, thank you for, for doing what you do. Uh, thanks for covering for me and having done no prep for this show at all, uh, which is only slightly unusual. Um, 
but we appreciate it. If you want to throw money at us, patreon.com slash element opioid disease is a way to do that. If you want to tell other people about it, uh, that would be awesome. Um, uh, ratings and reviews wherever you can. If you like the show, let us know. Truly. If you really like the show, pay for it. I, I, I don't, I, I've never been fond of begging like that, but it, it just really comes down to that. I, I've become, uh, you know, uh, you guys have seen the, the transformation over the last couple of years when, it, when we did that episode about put your money where your mouth is, I have really become a proponent of paying for the things that I believe that I like. And if you like the show, pay for it. I, that's not begging. That's just plain old everyday, um, the way life is. Patreon.com is a good way to do that. Uh, eBay, we've got a tip jar on the website. You could do that. You could send me Bitcoins, whatever you want to do. But if you like the show, pay for it. I'm sorry if that's crass, but I'm just going to say it. Um, yeah. Seth? No. Uh, no? Okay. I mean, you know, the only thing I would say is don't dig a well behind an outhouse. Well, there is that. Um, <laughs> what was it? London, city of London, or was it New York? One, one of the big major cities did that. They they built their cesspool and their uh, main water source so close together that one leaked into the other. Um, anyway, I, I read a book recently called Drinking Water, and it was the history of drinking water. And this was one of those things where nobody, it, you know, because nobody knew back then that water could make you sick. The, the prevailing thought right there was miasmas, basically stinky air made you sick. Uh, right. And this this really sort of the first CSI known tracked it down to the fact that anybody who drank water out of this public tap got sick. So let's uh, cap off this tap and nobody got sick anymore. And then it was like 30 years later, like a generation later, somebody figured out, oh, well, the cesspit and the, the aquifer are six inches apart. Maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> Wow, yet another diversion. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye before I go into another one. Thanks for hanging out with us. But that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. <laughs>